we're back. This is episode 14, but what we decided was we're going to call it season two. Episode one. Episode one. It's good to have you all back. It's good to be back. It's good to be back. We're thankful that we're back. We're thankful that we're back and ready for a new season of podcasts and of Gospel, Gospel, Gospel Well and Gospel, Gospel, community. Gospel Community. Yeah, so excited. So thank you again. We still have to figure out something about music. No, we're staying the same. I love that song. Mm. (laughs) It's been a while since we've... Yes. Back online, the podcast. I missed you. I missed you too. We might be joined by another person on this podcast. What do you think about that? I'll just be the sound engineer, and you guys can talk. Oh, no. Yeah. You no, are the one who makes things lively. You, you know you always need the hype man. He's you know, definitely the not the hype man. <laughs> you are the hype man. <laughs> no, I'll hype from the sidelines, and you guys can talk. <laughs> uh, I don't think it will not be the same. In fact, for the 10 listeners or 5 listeners who listen to this podcast, we'll have zero if you leave. <laughs> You'll actually will have one, you. No, the dynamic will still be the same. Oh, no, it won't. Yeah. I know it won't. That topic that you wanted to talk about, uh, gospel mission. Mission, yes. You said you you wanted to talk about gospel mission right after you came back from the La Franca. Yes. Well, I think it works because this Sunday is going to start the three-part series on gospel proclamation or gospel mission that Michael is leading. Another application of gospel mission. It's not gospel mission itself, but it's the application of it. In a sense, all of this, whether it's going around the world or going across the street, is gospel, is an application of gospel mission. I think I wanted to talk about um, and ask you some questions. Yes, you. <laughs> yes, you. <laughs> I should be asking you the questions because <laughs> we'll you both went ways. to we, Villafranca. Well, no, I think it. We we both have thoughts about this. You know, when I was preaching through John four and thinking of the Samaritan woman. So she is by far someone that we would not say is the typical missionary, and yet she understood. She didn't understand intellectually. She wasn't thinking, okay, I'm going to create this plan and going to try to reach my neighbors and going to do all these things. It was a natural outflow of her own personal transformation and her understanding of who Jesus was, that she finally saw him as the Messiah, as the Savior. And so therefore, she just naturally wanted to go tell people in her own community about Jesus. And actually, John records she told them what she had done. And I, I think it, it's interesting that um, what she had done was she was a sinner. She was a very, and not that she sinned publicly, but people knew about her sin. And when she went back to tell them, it's, it's sort of interesting because she was telling them about her own story, you know, her, her own brokenness, her own rebellion against the Lord and how in the past that kept her from even associating perhaps with people or people associating with her and in Christ because of the freedom of the gospel she was free to even talk about the things that she had done and to show 
how that freedom comes about. So I think as Michael's going to share this week, um, there's something to telling your own story of what Jesus has done to transform you and to free you from the power of sin and death. And then that telling of that story is significant. So maybe my question to you is, um, you know, how does that picture sort of shape or change your view of mission? Well, it's challenging about the woman doing evangelism or mission by acknowledging her idolatry and worship that everybody else knew or it was very apparent to everybody else. That as a innate part of talking about Jesus mm-hmm. and entering into conversation with people so that you would get them to Jesus, that is antithetical to what so many of us think about evangelism and mission. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the question is, why is that? Yeah, why is that? Why is that? I asked you first. <laughs> No, I asked no. you first. With her, it began with or includes transparency, mm-hmm. humility, yeah, repentance, acknowledgement of sin. But why is it so contradictory to our experience or what we think about evangelism and mission? I just have a feeling that we think of most things, not we just Christians, but human beings. Our instinct is to always think, what do I do? What can I do? What's the plan? What's the strategy? How do I organize? How do I administer? And it's our instinct to do that because we think we want to do something. It helps us to feel in control to some extent. It's sort of the same idea of prayer. Prayer forces us to relinquish control. And frankly, that's what makes prayer difficult, is that prayer is waiting on the Lord. Prayer trust in his results, not ours. Prayer depends on his timing. We feel as though we're not actually doing something, so therefore it doesn't seem as productive, effective. So all those words like productive, effective, it has this sense of there needs to be these results, and the results are always measurables, metrics-based, numerical. And I think that's Again, I, I, I want to be a little bit, it's not to say that there's no place for some sort of evaluation through numbers or through, you know, some sort of result. But at the same time, that's an outflow. That's not how we determine success. But our instinct is to use all those things as measurables for success of whatever that product is. So it's easier for a missionary to go overseas and if they can say I baptized 100 people, I translated the Bible in this language, I did these things, I send a letter home saying that, then it's, oh, you're producing results, therefore you are doing God's mission. The flip side is to say, okay, I'm not producing any results, but I'm just living life there, and maybe thinking that that's absolutely fine and It could be, but is there laziness involved? Is there an unwillingness to actually labor, as Paul describes in 1 Corinthians 9, to beat my body and make it my slave? It's always this tension of our responsibility, God's sovereignty. We do have a responsibility to actually go out there and share the gospel. We do want to see people baptized and see those who do not know Christ to turn to Christ, but 
but if we make that all about these numbers, then I can actually shape the numbers based on whether you said a prayer. You said the quote sinner's prayer. So therefore, automatically, that's a conversion. And so I write that in. But what if a week later, they completely reject Christ and turn away from the Lord? These are the things that I think we so often equate missions to at least from a global perspective and sometimes even from a local perspective. I remember when uh, we were, this is a while ago, we were thinking about, okay, how do we reach our community? And someone, someone had raised this suggestion. They said, why don't we go door to door and share the gospel with people? Very basic. The answer that another person gave was so telling. It was, you know, to do that is so old fashioned and an old way of thinking. It doesn't work anymore. So that was the answer, right? It doesn't work anymore because that's for an old way of doing things. We're in a new way. And I remember that and and I've been thinking about that a lot more. It's one of the reasons why in this, I think on the third week of this gospel proclamation, one of the things we want to do is actually go door to door because I don't necessarily think success is determined by the numbers. Okay, I went to X amount of doors, 100 doors and 3% open those doors and are now turned to Christ. That's the problem is that we equate doing something with the success of the numbers, whatever that threshold is, and then somehow that makes it either worthwhile to do something or not worthwhile. Let's have a prayer meeting because a thousand people come. But what if, or even a hundred or even 10, but what if two comes? Should we still have a prayer meeting? If we go to a thousand homes and only one person opens that door and the rest which like completely slam the door in your face, does that mean that that was a failure? So this is what I mean is that our concept of success and failure is way too often, I feel like, scaled to the side today of the way that corporations think of success. The bottom line, have we hit this benchmark of product or you know a financial benchmark or something that says this equals success? But the opposite is also the danger point. This equals failure. I think that's an underwriting driver for how we think of mission, at least in our day. What do you think? What would fruitfulness look like? So if it's not success in a worldly or contemporary way of measuring ministry and mission and evangelism, what would be a fruitful way of... Faithfulness? Fruitfulness. Faithfulness? I'm giving that as an answer with a question mark. Right. Well, one of the ways, like church planting measured, is counting nickels and noses, right? Money and how many people showed up. So that, and then you can get easily into success. Then there is the opposite argument by some Christians. We're just being faithful. And their church went from 150 people to 50 people to 10. And throughout that whole time, we're being faithful. We're being orthodox to truth. And we're not going to bend from that. Keller then talks about, you know, we're stewards of a garden, Garden of Eden, or in the city of God, or in the church, that yes, we are faithful, but along with that faithfulness is there's some sort of fruitfulness. What will be the fruit in this context of evangelism mission? Yeah, that's interesting. You're right. It can be that in some people's minds, faithfulness equals the willingness to hold on to something, even if it's truly to the detriment of people's souls. It happens. I don't think that's faithfulness. I think of the faithfulness of the parable of the talents, you know, where Jesus says to the 10 talent and the five talent person, you know, you've been faithful over little things. You will be faithful over much. And the little things 
I think it's important to note that there is a, a degree difference between a 10-talent person and a 5-talent person. The word talent is actually the, the Greek word talenton. It has nothing to do with the way that we use the word English word talent. It's actually a monetary unit. The danger is that we think of it from a talent perspective when it's actually about the more important thing is about the distinctive degree difference that there's someone who has 10 and someone who has 5 and someone who has 1 and that it's important to note that the 5 person received the same reward as the 10 person and the reason they did is that they were faithful with what the Lord had given to them what he had bestowed upon them so in that sense it wasn't about output because if it was about output you would think oh they would have received a proportionate result don't but, you think yes absolutely but there is the fruitfulness of the person with the 10 and person with the five there is what is the fruit which is they multiplied it there was some sort of return on that investment what is that multiplying though because you would agree that it's not salvation because they can't do the work of salvation right only the master gives that so it's not as though they worked hard so more people were saved, right? Right. We don't link working hard to salvation. Right. So then what is it that they're doing? What comes off the top of my head is the Samaritan woman walking back into town and telling people the act of her telling, look at this Jesus who knew everything that I ever did, mm -hmm. and yet he is the Messiah that we've been all been looking for, mm -hmm. I've been looking for. Mm -hmm. And I think that act is faithfulness worked out and then there's some sort of fruit people followed her mm -hmm. they came mm -hmm. <laughs> they hung out with jesus yes and then they say we don't believe because you told us we believe because we heard it straight from yeah. you and it's hard to put that into a metric yeah like how many people came the, but the problem is that people turn it into a metric right don't you think because your point is it's hard to put that into a metric and actually regardless of the number of people who came from the lord's perspective it bore fruit it bore fruit in her yes she became more of a disciple. Yeah. A sent one. Yes. And also in the people who heard it. Now, did it matter the number of people who came? I think, I don't think it as much, but I think that there is an increase. There's a positive fruitfulness that it's not just, oh, she became a believer and she was a good believer <laughs> and that's it. What do you think? Yeah. In, in the Lord's, from the Lord's perspective, because he controls that sovereignly, right? We entrust that to him, the results. Because I don't know her heart. Forget about the idea of the Samaritan woman, but let's say just some random person. If I was just saying, I'm so content with who I am, what I have, I don't need to tell anyone, and I'm just going to be faithful to what... You know, that heart is a self-centered heart. God knows that heart, and I don't. So that could be a person who... So if you have two people, they have... So one person says... I'm totally fine with being by myself. I'm going to love Jesus. I'm going to love I'm going to take reading care of my scripture. tribe. Yeah, I'm going to do that. And so no one turns to the Lord. No right? one else. No one else, right? Through that. You have another person who's saying, oh Lord, I trust you. I want to share Christ. And no one turns to the Lord either. And she does. She shares the gospel. She And there's no one who turns to the Lord. And she's, so the question is, Externally, they look the same, fruitfulness-wise. But internally, there's a distinctive difference that God knows. And so that's what I mean by the challenge of even the concept of multiplication in and of itself. Another thing is, let's say both this person through their self-centeredness, God can still bless someone through that. That's the idea of the cross, right? It's the cross was utilizing evil people. Um, Judas, Herod, Pilate. That's Acts chapter 2, right? And it's 
you tried to crucify the you know the Messiah and God's sovereign plan is still going to move forward. The church is going to expand even when terrible things happen, like the church being persecuted in Acts chapter 8, verse 1. God still advances the church despite sinners and sinful people and selfish motives and all that, right? The gates of hell will not prevail against the church. So one thing we know is that God doesn't need us to be a certain way for his church to proceed to the last days. He uses the church, surely, but it's not like, oh man, without them, I, I'm, I'm not going to be able to do this job. That's not what the Lord's thinking. And then, But then God, sometimes he doesn't give immediate fruitfulness. He gives it in the heart, but not externally. So for example, I think it's said that William Carey, he saw very little fruit in his ministry. But the next generation of Indian believers turned to the Lord. Like, it outlived his time. But if you were to live during the days of, say, someone like Adoniram Judson or William Carey, um, sometimes there was very little conversion growth. I remember something that Billy Graham said is that uh, there was this grandmother who used to pray for him. She was really a nobody from the world's eyes. All she did was pray. She didn't get opportunities of really sharing the gospel with too many people, but she saw that the Lord just impressed upon her heart to pray for this man. He says, like, through her, the Lord just used her dramatically to impact his life to be a person who would share the gospel with so many people. So that's what I mean by this idea of how we view success and numbers. I feel like our world is all about, if you don't produce the numbers, and it has to be these ways, in these forms, and I think the church very easily, and missions and we go down that road of it's all about you know seeing immediate fruit and if we don't fruit being conversion numbers or you want to go out door to door and you want to come back with that conversion story yes that's what some people are like looking for yeah but yeah that it, may not be it might not be it could be just we're just uh we're persecuted actually but maybe through that someone will turn to the lord who knows? That's why this concept is so interesting, but it impacts so much of our view of missions. Don't you think? We're just being faithful to where we are, and we won't go on missions. Yeah. Or when we go on missions, we want to come back and tell stories about, here's all the people that we minister to. Yeah. Or yeah. when we expect missionaries, when they send their newsletters, here's all the people that we're impacting. And that's why you should yeah. give more money. Yes, exactly. So I've been to Africa. If we wanted to, I've preached in churches, right, where there's translation. I could give an altar call after and say, how many of you would right now like to believe in Jesus as Lord and Savior? If I did it every time, I can pretty much guarantee you that at least a few, if not more, would raise their hand. And if I, over time, I think a lot of people would. But here's the thing. I don't know necessarily if they're real believers. But in the moment, you could feel a certain way. You could feel like, oh, I, I, li I like the idea. Or they see it almost superstitiously. Well, of course I'm going to raise my hand. That's going to protect my family. And why not pray to that God as well as to the shaman over here? I could still go to the shaman. I want to put my eggs in all the baskets. If I was a missionary... I could go around doing that and I could count up the number of hands who raise their hands and say, this week, a hundred people turned to Christ, right? And I sent that as in my newsletter, sent it to everybody. You know what's going to happen? Is people going to be like, wow, God's doing, he's using you mightily. You have a, and then they're going to send more money and I get to speak at more churches. And then maybe I go to speak at a missions conference. And then now I write books about, I, I'm not saying all missionaries are like this. I'm not. Because there are some really faithful, godly men and women who have given up everything for the sake of the gospel. I'm just saying that if we base our idea of success 
in this way, it leads to a real distortion of what gospel mission and the gospel is. This isn't just about missions. I've seen this in denominations. All the major denominations want to write, how many new church plants are there? How many people are baptized? How many people are saved? How many people are giving money? When they come up with a yearly report and they have these things, it's, this is why we're pretty awesome and you should join us because get in on this really big movement. Again, don't want to make it sound cynical because I do think that there are godly men and women who love Jesus, who love the gospel, who are going to the ends of the earth sacrificing, who are serving in denominations, in the churches, and like love the Lord deeply. But to me, the, the point of this is not to talk about how bad things are in this way, but more of making sure that we set our minds and our hearts right to think of fruitfulness, success, and what is really gospel mission. What do you think? A lot of it has to do then with checking our hearts, loving Christ, Christ being the true God of our lives rather than some lesser idols that getting in the way. And because of Jesus, our affection for Jesus, that we would want to share him, our joy in him, our freedom that's found in him, we would want to share that. That makes us much more transparent, much more humble, much more sharing of our brokenness as a way to talk about our story. I think that's much more genuine, authentic. And I think people, at least post-moderns or post-postmoderns, they want that genuineness, authenticness of who we are. Hopefully in Christ, the Holy Spirit will use that. Yeah, well, that's gospel mission to at least a first phase. I think... Um, it's a topic that we could, as every one of our topics, we could spend numerous hours and days discussing some of these things. Thankful we get to do this even, uh, you know, just to think about these things. There's more to come. So this is episode 14, if we count it. I'm also saying this is season two, episode one. Yes. What do we do with that? How are we going to number this? I think we should do season two, episode one. It's also preparation for Gospel Glass- Well, season two. Yes. That's happening in a month? In a month. We're excited to see some of you in person. In person. Um, what was your summer like? Did you do anything fun? Yes. After kids camp, it's been a blur. My parents visited. Lisa's side of the family visited. Thankful for Lake Tahoe, Monterey, SoCal. You have experienced Northern and Southern California fully. Yeah. So you've been here now one year and yes. a half. What do you think are the differences, one difference between specifically Philadelphia and Northern California? It's so much more exciting here. (laughs) I don't know why. I'm like, why is my summer so filled with all these cool things? Well, what did you do before in the summertime? I have no clue. Um, Mainly what I can recall is my parents visiting for like three weeks. Doing what? Sitting in your house, drinking coffee? No, sitting in my house, praying to the Lord, (laughs) eating, talking, praying to the Lord. (laughs) Well, you did go through COVID for a few, yeah, couple of years. So that's a couple of years of not much. But oh. before then, what? And you probably went to the beach, to New Jersey, the Jersey Shore, Jersey the Jersey Shore. 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 They don't call it the beach. The Jersey Shore. It's the shore. Remember, I'm from New Jersey. That's I had right. to practice to get rid of my New Jersey accent. Really? Yes, because when I would preach, I would say, I was talking to my daughter the other day and <laughs> drinking some water, and someone came up to me once and said, you know. I didn't understand anything you said because after you started talking about your daughter going to the mall 
<laughs> they say they couldn't think they couldn't even listen to anything else I said. So I thought, okay, I think I need to work on my New Jersey accent. So I had to relearn how to speak English. See, you don't have a New Jer- a Philly accent. I don't know why I don't have a Philly. That's that's pretty awesome. But I've no I have known plenty of people with a, with a Philly accent. Really? Yeah, it's pretty. I'm sure it slips out. Yeah, mine slips out. Oh boy. And of course, my kids they are the the biggest critics of my accents. When I start, my Jersey accent just slips out. They will emphasize it over and over again. Does San Francisco have a? Not really. Okay. Oh, you born native Californians. You're also elitist when it comes to language. Really? There's no accent? like a- Not really. Uh, the Valley Girl accent. But that's down south, right? Yeah. D- can you speak Valley Girl? <laughs> that's more our generation. That's the that's problem. True. That's they true. Don't, that they don't do that now. Although there is a California way of talking, but I don't want to do that now. I think too many people would tune us out as soon as we started doing that. 